Welcome to episode 297 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're back at it again. We're coming in hot with more great and amazing Christology. We're going to be talking a little bit about the mediator and about him being, we already talked about him being truly God, and now we're getting into the truly man component, if you will. And by component, I mean, I'm not separating those two things, (laughs) but they are things that we want to talk about with some separation in our speech. But of course, they're ultimately united together in consummate harmony. But before we get to that, I think you do have, do you have an affirmation and a denial or just denial? I don't know. Maybe we'll just talk a little bit about what's going on online. So I, I, I jumped back on uh, on Twitter this last week. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why. I just sort of got the itch to to jump back in the fray. And um, one of the things I did, and I'm glad I did, but also kind of regret, is when we shut down our social media in the past, I actually set it up so our old Twitter account would be deleted. So the history of our Twitter account is gone. Uh, but one of the things that's nice about when you do that is all the people that had you blocked don't have you blocked anymore. And uh, so I followed Owen Strahan, who blocked me within moments of uh, being questioned on a, a statement he was making. So I think one of the things just to be aware of when you're listening to what's going on with some of the theology proper discussions, I keep saying we need to come up with a name or or more accurately, I think, the anti Thomist, classical theists, whatever they are and are calling themselves, what we need to, they need to come up with a label for themselves because it's hard to even talk about who we're talking about. And I firmly believe we should only be using descriptive labels of people that they would themselves embrace. Um, So preferably they come up with that label themselves. But one of the newest sort of attacks that's happening, and it's kind of strange to me because I'm not sure I'm not sure exactly why they think this is a valid attack is they're going after what's called sometimes called strict subscriptionism. And I I haven't even really got a full understanding of what they think that means. Um, and of course I've asked for definitions. I've asked for them to clarify a little bit about what that means and that's not forthcoming, but what it seems like they're saying is that a person who believes that when you subscribe, I'm using air quotes, subscribe to a confession, that somehow that means you are placing that subscription or that confession above scripture, which is different than anyone I've ever met who actually thinks about subscription, um, actually thinks about the situation. But so we we get um, we get comments like um, if you are a strip subscriptionist, you're you know you're supplanting the Bible. You're creating a 67th book of the uh, New Testament. Um, one of the things that one of the questions that I asked um, Dr. Strahan before he uh, blocked me again was what elements of the Nicene Creed, and I was specifically talking about the. Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, which is what's commonly called the Nicene Creed. What elements of that does Dr. Strahan believe are biblical? Uh, and which elements does he believe are not biblical? And the follow-up question is, if if all of the elements are biblical, if the entire thing is biblical and it's it's actually concretely without error, 
And there's all sorts of debates about whether we should call it, we should use the word inerrant to describe that. So I'm not getting swept in on that. But if it's actually free from real error, if it teaches no error, then shouldn't shouldn't we strictly subscribe to that? Should shouldn't we affirm that creed in all of its parts without our fingers crossed? If if it truly does teach what the Bible teaches, and, and this is where this is where it's important because the the strict subscriptionist in terms of how strict subscriptionists actually define the subject would say that they subscribe to a particular creed or confession. This is more commonly talked about in confessional circles. You know, are you, do you strictly subscribe to the Westminster confession or there's systems, there's other kinds of subscription, but do you strictly subscribe, meaning you affirm everything about it in its totality, except maybe like phrasing, like you could still say you strictly subscribe to the Westminster Confession, but say like, but I really wish they would have phrased this differently, or I don't think they phrased this the best way possible. But what a strict subscriptionist usually means when they say they subscribe is that they believe that the totality of a given document faithfully teaches what the Bible does. And the reformed position going all the way back to the second Helvetic confession is that the word of God, when it is preached or confessed specifically preached, but I think by extension, when it is confessed in the form of a written confession that the, the church shares and speaks together, that's what the word confession means that it is itself the word of God administratively, not, not magisterially, but when, uh, when the pastor gets up in the pulpit on Sunday and preaches the word insofar as his sermon is consistent with the word and is faithful and accurate to the word, it is the word of God he is preaching, not merely the the man, not merely the words of man summarizing the word of God, but it is it is to be considered the word of God in a different sense than the Bible is, but still the word of God. And that logic extends to confessions. So when the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. That is that is a faithful teaching from the Bible, and thus we should regard it as faithfully God's word to us. Not the same way Scripture is, but faithfully God's word to us, because it's it's the Bible, it's the biblical teaching. So the question remains then: is is if Doctor Strahan believes that the Nicene Creed is that it is a faithful teaching, a faithful summary of Scripture, a faithful exposition of Scripture, then why wouldn't we want to subscribe to that strictly? And if he doesn't believe that that is um, the scriptural teaching, if he thinks there's something within the the Nicene Creed that is not scriptural teaching, then I think it would behoove him and it would make everything a lot easier for the discussion uh, if he were to just plainly say what it is in the creed that he believes is not uh, faithful biblical teaching. Um, similarly, you know, ran into some some conversation. I shouldn't call it conversation, but I responded to a tweet that James White wrote where he's trying to say, like, if you subscribe to Nicaea, but you don't also subscribe to the canons of Nicaea, as opposed to just the creed that you somehow are not actually subscribing, that's just historically inaccurate. So while it's true that the early church accepted and received the canons of the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, they drew a distinction between the canons of a council and and the creed that was promulgated at the council. And you can see that pretty clearly if you look at the definition of Chalcedon, 
where they say that that they are creedily binding themselves to the symbol of the 318, which is the the symbol of the 318 church fathers that was ratified at uh, the Council of Nicaea, and the symbol of the 150, which is the Constantinopolitan Creed, what we call the Nicene Creed. They were creedily binding themselves. They were subscribing, strictly subscribing to those creeds. And then in the canons of the Council of Nicaea, excuse me, the canons of the Council of, of uh, Chalcedon, they also received and subscribed to the canons of those two councils. And so what that clearly shows historically, if you're reading with even just a little bit of historical um, savvy, is that they saw that there was a difference between the canons and the creed, that they weren't one and the same thing. You could receive one without the other, and they did receive both, but they were not the kind of thing where you had to receive them all, all in toto. So I, I think there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of uh, sleight of hand that's happening that I think some of the uh, historically uninitiated um, who are not super familiar with those historical elements um, that are they're being fooled by. And I think that's I think with some of these guys, it's actually an intentional move to try to uh, it's a it's a rhetorical kind of a rhetorical feint. And I think it is tricking a lot of people and it just don't be fooled by it. Um, the idea that you, and then there's a whole other conversation that I won't get into because this isn't the topic of the episode, but there's a whole other issue of what subscription when receiving as a body even means. So for example, the OPC and the PCA do not confess the Westminster uh, confession as was, was produced in 1646. They confess a revision that the church made in 1788 that they then received uh, at the, you know, somewhere early on in their denominational life. So th there's this other element that strict subscription also somehow means that the confessions are not subject to revision. And that's also just not historically tenable. It just doesn't bear out the facts. So I think, you know, my time away from social media was nice. It was productive. I think I have a little bit of a different uh, posture, um, hopefully. But uh, it seems like the same stuff is happening. So I'm I'm interested to be back. We'll see how long I stick around. But it was it's been fun for so far for the past couple of days. <laughs> Somebody timestamp that. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Sounds like a denial. It has yeah. the flavor of a denial. It's the flavor of a denial. Yeah, yeah. There's there's uh, Twitter is what Twitter has always been, uh, and it hasn't changed. And Twitter pundits are what Twitter pundits have always been. And uh, they also have never changed. And I will just say this, like there are some for all of the um, all of the crit criticisms that I have about James White and his approach and personality and his theological um, departures recently from what what seemed to be a historically orthodox sound confession that he seems to have in certain areas um migrated away from a little bit. Um, he doesn't just block people on Twitter for, uh, for disagreeing with him, which is not the case for a lot of people that, uh, want to sort of, I don't know, spout off about theological matters, uh, but not actually face any sort of back and forth or conversation. So I'll commend him for that. He, he doesn't interact with everybody. He's selective about who he interacts with, which I get it. He's a busy guy. He only has so much time, uh, but he doesn't just block you most of the time, which is, is commendable. Here's my hot take on social media right now. 65% of all social media, even well-intentioned is just straight trolling. Our default position as human beings is to want to troll. Even if we drop down some pronounced truth, which is the truth, 
the idea, of course, is to elicit a response by exhibiting that truth and promulgating it into the interwebs. So it's mostly trolling. I'm cool with that, which is why I'm like, do your thing, internet. I'll just hang <laughs> out here. Yeah, well, this will be a little bit of a by way of affirmation. I'm really proud of uh, the Reformed Brotherhood Telegram chat. Uh, if you have not joined the chat, you should definitely hop in there. You can go to t.me slash Reformed Brotherhood uh, and join up. We've got over 100 people now, which is awesome. We've always got some good conversations going. Uh, we had a little bit of a troll join our group uh, the other night, and uh, the group handled it really well. They gave him the benefit of the doubt, e- even though I think multiple of us, uh, myself included, and then after it was clear that this was a troll, uh, had some suspicions that this person was just trolling, uh, was not asking questions in good faith, um, and in just in general was trying to disrupt things. They approached it, the group approached it with charity. They uh, assumed the best. They gave winsome and clear answers, even though the questions were being repeated multiple times. Um, so good on you guys. I think still think, even though I've I've sort of landed my feet back on Twitter a little bit and I'm toying around with the idea of reopening some of our Facebook um, profiles, um, I still think that it is, uh, it's the best way to go is this more real time chat. People are more like actual human beings that you're interacting with. I just think it's a little bit better. I will note that when I said I'm toying with the idea of reopening our, our Facebook channels, I don't know if Jesse meant to, but there was this, there was this head shake. I don't think he wants us to do that. (laughs) I don't even think he realized he was doing it. (laughs) It's a visceral response. I mean, if you want to do it, I guess there's, so here's the thing, like the internet is the internet. There's a lot yeah. there that could be redeemed. I'm just not sure it's worth redeeming. The question is, <laughs> is the juice worth the squeeze? It's and true. I would say it's just not in 90% yeah. of the cases. So yeah. I don't know. That, and that's what happened this week in this Telegram chat is where it's welcoming to all who want to talk and hang out and just chill and have dialogue. And actually... I would say as far as trolls go, this person was actually pretty respectful. I mean, at least there was like, I think respectful enough that most people who are interacting were giving the benefit of the doubt, were trying to be gracious and weren't even sure if it was an actual troll, if they were just trying to elicit response to get people riled up. There was some decent dialogue. So it, I don't know these things. I just feel like it's just so hard to have like actual meaningful conversation, even among those who are, in kind of the same sphere, in yeah. those who have hold the same theological opinions, it's really difficult to have meeting conversation in like a chat based environment. It's just yeah. hard. It is. It's true. Yeah, I think I think um, Twitter and Facebook are good for distribution channels, uh, and I think that's that's about all that they are good for. But the hard part is you can't really utilize them as peer distribution channels and actually, you know, accrue followers and accrue people who are are even seeing what you you're distributing without some of that interaction and then it it goes sideways real fast. So, we'll see. I'm experimenting a little bit. I, maybe it's like an addict thing where like I fell I fell off the wagon and I'll have to I'll have to get back on <laughs> off the wagon on the wagon. I never can remember. I feel like I this is know. a Seinfeld bit. That's fine. But as you know, and I think you appreciate that, there is a poll to social media. It does, if you've been away from it for a while, there's always the poll like, am I missing something? Do I regret a version bias here there where I wish that was part of something? You almost have to hold out and see what happens. So it's it's its own thing. It's very, very interesting. It's a massive experiment. And I suppose we're part of that all the same. It's true. Well, that was my little uh, spiel from being back on the Twitter for a few days. And, uh, yeah, is an interesting foray, but I think we should talk about Jesus. How about that? 
Let's definitely talk about Jesus. Yeah. So this week we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, sort of the second axis of Christology. So so we've kind of defined or compass point. We've kind of defined that there's four compass points of Orthodox Christology, right? So we confess that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is truly eternally God. And then we also confess that the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and took on a full, complete, true human nature in the incarnation. And then in the coming weeks, we'll talk about how it is that um, those natures are not confused. And then we'll also talk about how it is that those natures are not separable or how it is that they're united in a way that does not does not foster division. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on in the Christology stuff to talk a little bit more about the work of Christ and the mediatorship of Christ. But we're talking about that, that second compass point this week about what it is uh, to say and what it is to mean that Christ is truly man. And we've, we've talked about this uh, in terms of Christology. I think this element of Christology of, of sort of, Couching and defending and articulating what it means for the son to the incarnate God man to be truly and fully God and truly and fully man without um, without losing sight of the truly man part of it. We've talked about that quite a bit. We've done episodes about the fact that Jesus isn't a superhero, right? That that he isn't walking around floating two feet off the ground. Um, that he really is truly man, subject to all the limitations and frailties of human nature apart from sin. Um, we've talked about, you know, sort of a more classical presentation of defending the, the humanity of Christ. So this week, I think I wanted to talk a little bit more about what is it, why is it that we say that the the God-man had to become man, right? This is a classic classic question in, in uh, Christian theology. There are tons of books about it. Um, we're going to be, as a Reformed Brotherhood um, telegram chat, we're going to be reading through On the Incarnation by Athanasius, which is very much so a, um articulation of that very question. Um, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it in the group, but that, that book was probably written after the Council of Nicaea, although I disagree with that. I actually think it was written prior to the outbreak of the Arian controversy. But in either case, it was Athanasius's attempt to explain why it is the incarnation had to happen, not so much how it is the incarnation had to happen. And so I think that's a really valuable question that we have to ask as Christians is why is it that God needed to have the incarnation happen? Why is it that the second person of the Trinity needed to take on a true, genuine human nature in order to accomplish the redemption of his people? Um, why couldn't he have just wiped the slate clean? Why couldn't he have just discharged the debt? And I think that that's a, that's a fruitful discussion that a lot of Christians probably don't think about all that much. And I think it's a really good question that, that really leads to a deeper understanding of the incarnation itself. Yeah, for sure. I think that's important that maybe it's something that's undervalued that we just don't often consider. Yeah. So I want to pull up some information out of the, the um, catechisms here because the Westminster shorter catechism um, doesn't, doesn't really approach this directly, but the Westminster larger catechism does. And so the, the shorter and larger catechisms, as we've talked about um, the shorter catechism is designed for primarily for fathers to teach their children and to catechize their families. The larger catechism really was more designed to um, help to educate and to um, kind of give boundaries for ministers themselves. And so it's a little bit more detailed and it has more information uh, about these theological topics. Uh, 
And so what we see in uh, question 37, and we talked about this a little bit in our sort of prolegomena episode here, is that the the Bible and Reformed theology, which we would say are um, are one and the same thing, right? Reformed theology simply is the biblical teaching in our view. Um, Reformed theology starts with the uh, Son as the second person of the Trinity, eternally divine. And so one of the mistakes of the uh, of Christology, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks here, is thinking that the miracle of the incarnation is man becoming God, that the, there's this man, Jesus Christ, and somehow he becomes God. The question, how is it that a man could become God, is, is kind of the question that's asked. In reality, the way that the Bible presents the incarnation and the way that the Reformed systematic thought presents the incarnation is that the miracle of the incarnation is not a man becoming God or being found to be God or somehow gaining divinity. It's God becoming man. And so we start with the divine. We start with the divine person taking into himself a human nature. And so question 37 of the larger catechism says, how did Christ being the son of God become man? It says, Christ, the son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the power of the Holy ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance and born of her yet without sin. And then question 38, um, question 38 asks, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? This was something that Blake talked about a lot last week towards the end of the episode. He, he read this question and then question 39 says, why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? And the answer is, it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. And so we'll we'll break all that down here, but what that basically means, if we distill it down right now to its its most fundamental level, is that in order for Christ, in order for the Son to bring us to the Father, he had to sort of he had to take on our nature and then come get us. So we often hear about that there's like a cross, there's a chasm that, you know, there's like those illustrations where there's a chasm and there's God on one side and there's man on the other side and the chasm is sin and the cross comes down, the cross, the cross creates this bridge and we walk across the cross. And that's true insofar as it goes, but it's probably more accurate to say that the, the son himself, the incarnate Christ is the bridge that brings us to God. The cross is absolutely central to our theology. So that's not what I'm saying, but the incarnation itself is the bridge that that sort of crosses that chasm. And the cross is an element of how that incarnation bridges that chasm. But when we're talking about this, we're not necessarily just saying, well, Christ had to die. That's a part of it. But we're also saying Christ had to live. He had to elevate and perfect the human nature. He had to, um, he had to make intercession for us as one of us, not just as God, not just as the second person of the Trinity, but as a human person. And then also he had to have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, which I think is something that a lot of times uh, reformed theology kind of misses in this whole, um, this whole conversation. Right on. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's the episode. <laughs> it basically is. I think you just answered the question. There's nothing yeah. more to say. Yeah. So so what do you think about that question, Jesse? I mean, what are what are some thoughts you had in terms of the the practical import of us not just focusing on the crucifixion as uh the means of the atonement, but as as the incarnation being a central feature of what was required when Christ uh, for Christ to save us. 
I mean, I really don't have anything to add to what you already said. I mean, we understand a mediator is one who interposes between two parties that are at variance. So if you're going to bring somebody in who can help with reconciliation, you, of course, want somebody even in the shadow of the world here that represents you, that understands you, that is like you, and that knows you. So by that nature, we need to have someone that is exactly like us if we're to try to, in some way, bridge the gap that is the variance between us and God. So of course, like in the beginning, there was no variance. There was a distinct difference in distance in the natures, but there was no variance between the parties. But of course, when the fall occurs, that case is entirely altered. So God gets dishonored and highly offended. Man is alienated from God and subjected to his judicial displeasure. And so man wasn't able to satisfy all the claims that we talked about, the divine law, which God had set forward for us and which we had violated. So to get the kind of restoration that was true and not in name only, not the kind of restoration that was not just promulgated, but actually secured, we needed somebody that was just like us. So at the risk of like just reading entirely from Hebrews 5 and reiterating everything you said, that's why it was necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, Christians often, um, I think we undervalue the incarnation itself. And that was something that I really learned as I was studying patristic Christology. Um, in, in some ways, if you read Eastern Orthodox thought, um, which I don't think is fully accurate on this in terms of how they even understand the patristics, but it's almost as though the incarnation itself is, um, is the atonement. And that's not, I don't think that's accurate, but I do think we have a tendency in Western Christianity um, for a lot of reasons to make it basically so the incarnation is just the prerequisite for the cross, right? The only reason that Christ had to take on a human body and a a human soul and a true rational soul is so that he could die. So it it wasn't just, um, you know, it wasn't just that, but primarily it's because he had to go to the cross. And you even hear this sometimes in sermons where, where, um, you know, at Christmas time, we say things like, well, the manger is really about the cross or Christmas is really about Easter. And th- those are true, I think, to a certain extent, is that the 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 atonement required the death of the mediator, right? And the, you, you can't have a mediator who dies if you have a mediator who is just God. And so that's that's part of what this question is getting at, is that the the necessity of the incarnation includes the suffering servant, right? God can't be, God the Son can't be the suffering servant if he doesn't take on a a nature in which suffering is a category that makes sense. But at the same time, the suffering servant also had to be perfectly righteous, right? He had to, he had to make a place for himself among sinners without himself becoming a sinner. He had to, he had to number himself among the transgressors without himself becoming a transgressor. And so that, you know, that goes back to what we've talked about with all this, all the covenant theology. There's the covenant of works. Then Adam failed the covenant of works. And so all those who follow after Adam are already behind the eight ball. We're already starting off with a debt that we cannot repay. Even perfect obedience only maintains uh, a gracious uh, relationship that God initiated. Uh, and so once we've lost that relationship, we can no longer regain it. And so the in, the mediator not only had to come and pay the penalty of the covenant of works, he had to suffer the curses of the covenant of works, which Adam incurred for himself and all of his posterity. But he also had to fulfill the, the obligations of the covenant of works in order to obtain the merit or the blessings or the favor of God. I know that the word merit sometimes gives people like an allergy attack. 
Um, but he had to obtain the blessings of the covenant of works by obedience to the covenant of works in order that he may now give us those. He may now extend those blessings to his people in a way that's analogous to how all of the blessings of the covenant of works would have been inherited by Adam's descendants had Adam fulfilled it. And that's why it's so important for us to, to get this to Adam Christology right. Um, a lot of times I think some Christian systems, they don't really fully understand or have a good robust appropriation of that to Adam Christology, but this is something that the reformed tradition does exceptionally well. And I was struck by this when I was first studying patristic theology is that when you have Athanasius, his, his, um, Athanasius's maxim, which I think sometimes is misunderstood, but it, it gets translated as God became man so that man might become God. And people take that way out of proportion. I think they misunderstand what it means. But basically, if you if you rephrase that in more along the lines of um, sort of reformed categories, um, Christ became the second Adam so that we may inherit the blessings that he obtained, right? So we don't become God, right? We don't become divinized the same way that, and this is why why when we get to it next week, why understanding the that the natures do not become united, they not become merged together is important. Christ's human nature did not become divinized, right? Christ's human nature retained all of its human characteristics, all, all of, I shouldn't say all of its human characteristics, retained all of the true human characteristics. So even after the resurrection, when it was a glorified humanity, it was a glorified humanity, not a, not a deified humanity, but it was a humanity that was glorified to its natural end. That is what we get, and that's why it's important, is because if we have a mediator who doesn't become truly human, then there's no sense in which we retain our humanity after the incarnation. So that's that part of the catechism which says to advance our nature. The Roman Catholic error in part, and I think in some ways um, the Lutheran error can sometimes do this, there is a, a, a subtle um, elevation of human nature beyond natural human capacities in that uh, God doesn't just restore us to what we were in the garden prior to the fall and then and then advance us to what Adam would have been advanced to had he succeeded his probation. They actually progress past that. And Roman Catholic theology explicitly gets progressed past that to a full-on level of divinity, not, not creature, not crossing the creature-creator divide per se, and that doesn't happen in Eastern Orthodoxy either, but something beyond what we would be comfortable with, beyond what we think the Bible teaches. So that's really, really key to retain this true, genuine humanity of Christ. Otherwise, we lose some of the grounding for what our final glorification ultimately will mean for humans. That's right on. You covered it all. I feel like this is like the could be the shortest episode in the catalog so be. far. Is, is there any more you want to add to that? I mean, I feel like there's probably a lot more that we could add to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, go go for it. Keep going. Keep it going. I mean, I just, I just, I can't reiterate how much it, how much we need to understand this. Like it's, this is not, uh, this isn't Christianity 601, right? This isn't master's levels Christianity. This is like the baseline for like, this is Christianity 101. And this is where I think sometimes the modern evangelical church and, and the reformed uh, people coming out of evangelicalism, the, the formerly evangelical reform people, I think we start off a little bit behind uh, behind the curve on this because we do, I think we come from a tradition that has some of these inherent um, 
docetic tendencies where we don't really think about the humanity of Christ as though it's true humanity. So I, I shared when I was talking with the distilling theology guys, I remember being at a youth retreat and the the big shocker question that the, um, the speaker asked was, do you guys really think that Jesus pooped? And the implied answer was, of course not. He's Jesus. And it's like, well, we, we really, we really need to rethink our Christology. If we think that somehow Christ's humanity is so different from our humanity that he didn't have normal bodily functions, right? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't sweat. He didn't cry. He, you know, and this is, this gets to that sort of idea that like Jesus is really like, he's really like Clark Kent, right? He's, he looks human. He sounds human. He can sort of pass as human. He can voluntarily make himself seem human by not exercising some of his Superman qualities. But at the end of the day, the bullets are still going to bounce off of him. And that's just the way it is. And I think sometimes we have a Christology that's like that. And the reality is that Superman doesn't save us as one of us. He doesn't defeat the bad guys because he he is truly human. He defeats the bad guys every time because he's Superman, because he's not human. And if we're not careful, we end up with a Christology that misses all these points that the Westminster Larger Catechism is landing on because we have a Christ who's not actually human. He can't advance our nature because he never actually took it into himself. He can't intercede for us in our nature because he never took it into himself. Um, and this goes to that, you know, patristic maxim that what he did not assume he did not heal. So there's all of these elements of classic Christology emphasizing the importance of a true, distinct, genuine humanity that the second person of the Trinity took into himself that I think we often miss if we're just thinking about like the, even like the, the CCM worship songs we sing, right? We don't, we don't often sing, we sing about the suffering on the cross. I think that's a common theme, but do we sing about the, uh, everyday miseries of life that Christ had to undergo. That's one of the things that I think um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says is that Christ, part of his humiliation was that he was uh, born in a low estate, made under the law, undergoing all the miseries of this life. So his, his suffering didn't just start at Passion Week. It started in the womb. It started at birth. It started at the beginning of his human nature because that's that's part of what being a human living in a fallen estate of sin and misery. Obviously Christ was not a sinner. He did not have original sin, but he still was affected by the consequences and the corruption of sin in the world. And his nature was subject to the common infirmities that are a result of sin. If we miss that, if we lose that, then we really have lost a lot of the uh, actual concrete salvific elements that Christ accomplished. We just lose that in our theology, which is going to run it. It's going to lead us to all sorts of other weird corruption problems later on. Right on. So what do you think to kind of wrap that up? What do you think of the practical implications of all that stuff? Well, I mean, I think, I think um, some of it has, it, it, it impacts how we pray. Right. I, I, I want to be clear. We can and should pray, I think, to all three persons of the Trinity and to to God sort of simpliciter, right? We, we can pray to God without any one person of the Trinity in mind. We, uh, I think we, we pray to the Father more instinctively. Uh, we should pray to the Son. We have biblical warrant, an example of people praying to the Son. And I think by way of implication, even though I don't think there are any specific examples in the Bible of people praying to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is equally God and he's equally a person uh, with the other two. So so there's no reason we shouldn't pray to the Spirit. But I think that the, the biblical model 
is to recognize that our prayers must have a mediator. And so that in that mediator is the son. It's, it's Christ in his human nature. And so I think a properly, uh, a properly reformed Christology, I think orients us more towards a mode of prayer where we're, we're coming to the father and the father is sort of the representative of the whole Godhead. So when we come to the father because of um, divine inseparability, right? We come to the father, the father hears our prayer. So also the son and spirit as God hear our prayer, but we come to the father. We, we orient ourselves and posture ourselves towards the father in the mediatorial intercession of the son. So we're praying through the son, but we're praying through the son as our human mediator. We're not praying to the second person of the Trinity according to his divinity to mediate with us to uh, for us with the Father. We're praying to the Son as Christ, as our mediator, who then intercedes and brings our prayers to the Father. Um, and then that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus, right? And then we do that in the power of the Spirit, but it orients getting our Christology right, I think almost automatically shores up issues in our Trinitarian theology. Right. And, and the other way around, if we get our if we get our Christology wrong, it causes problems in our Trinitarian theology. That's the whole issue we talked about last week with with EFS. When we, we confuse that God, you know, the son is not truly God implicitly, then it screws up our doctrine of the Trinity. Likewise, if we get our doctrine of Christology right, it actually starts to readdress and correct some of our theology of the Trinity. And that is, I think, automatically also going to bring about a more robust uh, and more biblically sound prayer life. Um, and that that was really my experience when I started to get my head around this, this uh, I think, more biblical, uh, patristic Christology. My prayer life suddenly didn't seem as dry. I mean, I still, I, if I'm being honest, I still struggle with prayer. I think a lot of Christians struggle struggle with prayer. It's a not it's not an easy thing, but when I'm praying and I I'm praying in to the father in the name of the son, through the mediatorship of the son, uh, in the power of the Holy spirit that now gives me all the grounding I need to know that my prayers, even as feeble as they are, are being brought to the father by the perfect one who intercedes, not just on my behalf, but in my nature. Um, and I think that's a really key takeaway that I think should give Christians a lot of, um, a lot of assurance and a lot of, um, a lot of comfort and a lot of motivation to pray too, I think. Right on. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's what about you? for us what, to understand. What do you think a practical implication is? I mean, again, I have nothing to add to that. I think that that's right on. There's a gift in knowing that God became man. That's something that's just distinct to the Christian worldview. So we it's, again, it's an undervalued thing. We certainly impound it in a lot of what we do. But I think there's something to be said for what you've encouraged us all to do, which is to think about it, to meditate on it, to understand that when we come before God and we ask him for something that we're, when we're ushered into the throne room again, like all Hebrew stuff, that we're recognizing that this comes by great sacrifice. It comes by intentionality on God's part. Yeah. The other practical element I think that I want to call out too is I think that this helps us to read our Bible better too. Um you know, it's kind of a, it's either a positive or negative feedback cycle, right? If we get our Christology wrong, then we're going to get things about the Bible wrong, which is going to lead us to further Christological problems. But I also think too, that when we understand, um, that Christ had to learn the scriptures the same way we did, um, 
you know, the son didn't, didn't get a direct download from the father, according to humanity, right? He had to go, he had, when he was 12, he went to the temple. He asked lots of questions. He sat at the feet of teachers. He learned from his mother. Um, he learned from Joseph. He learned from the rabbis in his town. I mean, all of these things happened. He studied the scriptures and he learned who, not only, not only the scriptures in general, but who he was according to his humanity, right? In reference to his divinity, he had all of the knowledge that ever was. He had full knowledge of all things that could be and and were and would be. Um, But according to his humanity, he had to study the scriptures with the same human limitations that that we do. And I think that should also help us to, to be motivated because as hard as it can be sometimes to understand the scriptures, it's possible right? It's possible. We have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the same illumination that, that Jesus had. Jesus had the same Holy Spirit that we do. Um, and, and the Spirit illuminated the scriptures to him, perhaps in a more elevated way, perhaps. Um, and he wasn't tainted by sin. So his his ability to see and understand the things of God was not corrupted and, and darkened by sin. He didn't see through the, the glass dimly in the same sense that we do. But he didn't have a direct download, right? So when he when he read um, when he read about the the man who appeared to be bronze from the waist up in uh, I think that's I want to say that's Amos maybe or Ezekiel, um, you know, there's this scene where there's a man who appears to be bronze from the waist up and he goes into the city. And I remember when I was reading, I was like, "That's Jesus." I think they're probably you know, and maybe I'm maybe I'm not anthropomorphizing. I don't need to anthropomorphize the Christ, but uh, maybe I'm imposing this a little bit. Um, I think there was probably a moment when Jesus was studying that passage where he, where he, where it clicked and he went, that's me. That's me. I, that was me. I was the one in that vision doing that. Um, and this points to me as the, as the, the God man, um, or, you know, when he's reading Daniel and he sees that the son of man will come on the clouds, um, he later appropriates that to himself. There had to have been a point where he was reading that section of Daniel where he recognized I am that son of man. And this tells me about myself and my ministry. I'm that son of man. So I think I think that should encourage us not only to go to the scriptures, but it should encourage us that we can and and that we will have success when we go to the scriptures. Um, I think that's another good practical takeaway from it. Yeah, I totally agree with you right on. If anybody's looking for more elaboration on what you just said, I would recommend Mark Jones' book, Knowing Christ, where yeah. he has a whole chapter where he speaks about Christ understanding and learning about himself, so to speak, as yeah. he comes under obedience of the Father by learning through the scriptures. It's that's worth reading that chapter. The whole book, you just buy it, that chapter yeah. is good enough to substantiate the cost. Yeah. And the the uh, chapter on Christ and the Holy Spirit, I think was a super helpful chapter for me too. I think it's called Christ's Companion is the the name of the chapter. Um, that whole book is phenomenal. Yeah, the whole uh, thing you know, is good. The other thing I'll just I'll just plug here. Uh, I mentioned it before um, a couple of guys in the chat um, had mentioned wanting to do a book club. I still haven't quite figured out exactly how it's all going to work, but we're going to start reading on the incarnation um, by Athanasius uh, in the beginning of July, and we're going to probably take a month, you know, two months to do it. So we're going to go slow. There's a separate Telegram chat that we've started, so we don't clutter up the main Telegram chat with uh, book chat. Uh, but we're going to put out a schedule, and we'll just chat about it as we go. The book is really approachable. It's a relatively inexpensive cost. Um, you can get it on Lagos. So this is a good opportunity for us to talk about how great we think Lagos is. Um, it's fully indexed. It's fully available. I think it's only $14 if you purchase the version that we're using on Lagos, um, which means you can search it. You can take notes right in the app. Um, you can also, if you're looking to get Lagos, you can still take advantage of the 
uh, $50 fundamentals package. Uh, and then you also get a whole collection of free books as well as some basic resources like Bibles and some dictionary theology dictionaries, some systematic resources. You can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash logos. If you're interested in buying a base package, you can get, uh, I think it's 15% off and five free books. Otherwise, if you're interested in that fundamentals package specifically, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash uh, May Lagos, May 2022. Uh, and it'll have information about that promotion. Um, and there's been a couple guys in the the chat, um, who've made a purchase and they've talked about how helpful they found it to have that, um, have that software to be able to utilize it. I know I use Lagos every single day. I really think it's a super useful tool that, that can sometimes be a little overwhelming. And that's why some of these lower level base packages are nice is because you can sort of start off a little bit slower with a little bit less resources and you can build your library as you go. So check that out. Uh, check out the Telegram chat. Uh, and then as always, we've got a number of ways that you can support the Brotherhood. If you go to reformbrotherhood.com, there is a link in the top corner that says join the Brotherhood. Uh, there are a series of different things you can do. Uh, so we won't uh, belabor that point, but check that out. And uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's just about it. This might be the shortest episode of the, the podcast. I think so. Listen, when it's definitive and it's cogent and it's brief, that's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>